Welcome to Empower Humans. Welcome again to the Empower Humans podcast. This is episode 141 today with Dr. Lynn Morell. We're so excited to bring this uh, interview to you. We had a very powerful conversation talking about trauma and love and gratitude and resiliency and uh, pain and its purpose and all these really deep topics that truthfully I think apply to every single one of us human beings. And I love stuff like that because the universality of it uh, just speaks volumes and we can really unite under the umbrella of uh, topics like this. And we try to do that a lot on this podcast. Um, I'm not going to do too much summary. I just want you to jump into the interview. But before we do that, I want to remind you, as always, you are absolutely priceless and you're never alone. Please, please, please always remember that. Please don't try to convince yourself or let anyone or anything convince you otherwise. Whatever the various difficulties we all face, some of them are unique, but we're not alone. We're all facing difficulties. Uh, Whatever we perceive, whether it's in the media or different things or, you know, the whole thing with this COVID crisis and the various things uh, surrounding that. There's been a lot of difficulties with that. Um, I'm pleased to see that things are starting to reopen. I'm hoping that uh, that works out well, and I'm starting to see my boys are starting to go back to school gradually, uh, and maybe yours are too if you've got kids or whatever your situation is, is things are starting to reopen, and I'm very, very grateful for that. Um, but again, your price is your above the monetary systems of this world, the riches are found in you. I say that every time now, and I just want you to constantly remind yourself of that. We talk in this episode about affirmations, and we've talked about that in the past on this podcast, uh, but I want to reiterate that topic. Have a positive self-talk. Uh, come up with things that are meaningful to you, both in the state of who you are and in your goals that uh, you can accomplish and be. And uh, Zig Ziglar taught a lot about some of those things as well. You can look some of that up. He used to pass out a card to his audience. This was before the internet and all kinds of things. He used to <laughs> give people these these things they could look in the mirror and read to themselves. It might sound hokey, but there's massive power in that stuff. Uh, also, I just want to reiterate our challenges. Study is the first one. I uh, can't say enough about that. I've been able to tune my mind and soul by studying, and I know that you can too. And it's just because, as we always say, and we talked even in this uh, interview about music and getting out of tune and all these sorts of things as an analogy, uh, studying truth, uh, whatever the case might be, even if you're studying fiction, just stimulating your mind can get you back to a place of harmony with uh, your true self and the universe. And so I encourage you to study, of course. I've been saying that for 141 episodes here. And of course, uh, the second challenge is make great moments, which is always real important. You guys hear me tell these stories about I spend time playing Legos with my son or I go swimming. And I, by the way, I, I just got a new bike for my other son because he's gotten bigger. So his little kid bike, uh, he's 11, but he's quite large. He's like five foot uh, five or so now at the age of 11 and less than a foot from my height. I'm close to six, four. Um, but in any case, so I'm just working on ways to find more ways to make great moments. We're going to go ride bikes together. We're going to continue to just do things together and surprise each other and love each other and laugh. I spent time this last weekend at the pool with my younger son and we just spent probably two hours pretty much in constant laughter, playing games and throwing the tennis ball to each other and all kinds of things like that. Find your version of that, whatever your situation is with your family, loved ones, usually making great moments will involve those people. So find a way to creatively, uh, you know, search your soul for ways to do that uh, most effectively. The last challenge, of course, is let's keep doing this podcast together. I'm grateful for you. We're always flattered you spend time with us. And uh, I'm really grateful for Dr. Lynn Morell and the great things that she brought us today. So without further ado, let's just jump right in. Here's our interview with Dr. Lynn Morell. Here we go. We are so grateful today to welcome Dr. Lynn Morell, who is a revolutionary leader in energy and soul work. When I heard that title, Dr. Lynn, I was like, I've got to talk to you. And and I heard so much more about you and read so much more about you. How are you today, by the way? I'm fine. It's such a pleasure to be here, Phil. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. I was, uh, <laughs> for our listeners, they don't know we had a little uh, technical things going on. We're not going to belabor that topic, but... Uh, we wanted to muscle through so we could get this message out to everybody today. And so we're doing it by phone. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're grateful we've got all these technological uh, both advances and options. So here we are on the phone. <laughs> Where are you coming to us today from, Dr. Lynn? Pennsylvania today. Okay. Uh, next week, California. I'm, oh. around, I'm around a bit now that COVID's lightened up. Did you, you have a 310 phone number. Are you from L.A. area or is that, do you, like, do you have a home there? 
I actually spent 25 years in in uh, L.A., and now I'm back on the East Coast. Oh. So I, I kind of am bi-coastal, you could say. Yeah. Well, that's cool. You get the uh, best of both coasts, <laughs> so to speak. Uh, interesting. <laughs> and uh, so you lived 25 years in L.A., and uh, let's go back. You know, I know that you have this uh, this whole journey about being a runaway at age 17 and all these things, not to just jump right in, but I always love hearing people's story and you've got a fascinating one. Uh, do you want to tell us your story to start? Oh, sure. I'll make it as short as possible. Okay. Um, I grew up in a, in a family that, you know, I would say was loving, although incredibly dysfunctional. My mom was bipolar. My dad was an alcoholic. There was a lot of uncertainty um, at the age of six months, I was taken away from my mom due to her mental illness and lived for five years with my grandmother, aunt and uncle. When I was five, I was sent back, and I like to say to the fun, funny house. And um, it was very, very difficult for me. I had some experiences, I call them near lives, where um, I had experiences of being on the other side, for lack of a better word. I was young at the time. I was about eight years old when that one happened. And, um, and and a few other times. So I developed a very great um, inner awareness that I didn't know what to do with. So when I was accepted to college, my mom had another psychotic break. And um, it was pretty clear that I was on her hit list, so to speak. So I ran away and worked my way through college. I worked as a nurse's aide. I worked doing secretarial things. I was the rat lab, <laughs> experimental lab assistant, yeah. statistics lab, all that stuff to make ends meet. Um, being a young kid, you know, with a pretty dysfunctional background, I like to say I was about 12 years old in a 17-year-old body. The martial arts, I would say, was the definitive change in my life. Um, at 15, I was co-opted by my mom to escort my younger sister to judo classes she left three months later. They mm -hmm. decided I didn't need to go, but I was so in love with this art form where a chubby little introverted kid that never spoke could excel. And it was like a duck to water. And everything I learned to empower myself came from a grounding in martial arts where yeah. I learned to respect my body. I learned to push my body in a way that I could feel comfortable I excelled at something, mm -hmm. and that was the beginning of my transformation that took many, many years. Wow. Let's talk about the martial arts for a second because, uh, you know, most of us know what that is in general, and there's various faucets of martial arts as well. Some of us Westerners aren't as well-versed. Some certainly are as well. But uh, talk to me more about the martial arts and, and what – what power you found there and how and why, if you don't mind? Not at all. For me, Phil, it was the first time in my life I felt safe physically. Mm -hmm. When I learned that I could take care of myself in a very physical confrontation, I began to relax my hypervigilance. You know, because when you're living with a, a lot of dysfunction, I, I think most of us that live through that become very hypervigilant. I also became somewhat of a people pleaser because if I could calm my mother down by putting my hands on her or, you know, uh, just manage things as a young kid, I brought that into the martial arts. My teacher became like a surrogate dad to me. Mm -hmm. And when my mom was committed, once again, when I was uh, in high school, he became my go-to. I'd go sit on his couch. His six Doberman pinchers and standard poodles would lick me while I'm on the daybed. And we would talk about things. Yeah. And his loving and seeing of my potential was one of those rare serendipitous things where this human being came into my life that saw me. Mm -hmm. And he asked me once, um, and, I, and I, I, I ended up working to get my $35 a month in 1965. And I went on, and, and finally he stopped charging me, and I started teaching all the men, which was an incredible thing for me. Um, that led to, after I ran away, went to college, I was driven. I was doing grad school in my junior year in college because I had this need to overcome feeling like I was an imposter. 
Because when you live with a situation like my family, you know, friends didn't come over. I was a loner at school. But the judo was the great equalizer for me. And that's a very physical thing, you know, like you throw people and you pin them, which is funny for a 15-year-old chubby kid to be doing. Yeah. (laughs) But the the joy in that, Phil, was, and and I was bullied quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, The joy in that was after I'd been practicing judo for a while, I was in the gym one day and I had a, a wild crush on this young man called, you know, Randy, who was my neighbor and he was the varsity, this and that, but I just liked him. Mm-hmm. And he was trying to learn how to do judo out of a book. Mm. And I, I overcame my timidity and I said, would you like me to show you how to do that move? And he looks at me and goes, you know judo? I said, yeah, I've studied for a while. And then I threw him and then the Marine, <laughs> there's no such thing as an ex-Marine, but the gym teacher was a Marine. <laughs> and he came over and he said, do that to me. I said, I can't. You don't know how to fall. I didn't know he was a Marine. And so I proceeded to deck him. And word got around the school really fast that, that the bullies didn't mess with me. And the most incredible, incredible experience was the gym teacher asked me to coach the wrestling team as a guest visitor. <laughs> and this is in 1965. So that was the beginning of my ascent into greater awareness of the power inside of me, which was only just little then. I right. continued. I, I I went on to study Toichiru Karate. Um, today I'm actually I I say a fifth de- degree black belt, but I was actually promoted one more. It doesn't matter. Nobody knows what a sixth degree black belt really does anyway. Um, and I went on to use the principles as an entrepreneur. I used them to become curious about my self awareness. Why did I freeze in certain times? Why was I flowing in other times? And I started to look at life uh, impartially as someone who competed nationally and was a guest of the government in China when they opened in 84. And so that whole process was of uncovering what I was not to become who I am. And I think that's our hero's journey on this planet. Wow. Wow. That is, there's a lot of deep power in there. Some people may brush over some of what you just said, but to uh, brush over, or excuse me, to overcome what you were not to become what you truly were, essentially. And again, pointing out, I mean, you kind of brushed over some of this too, but you are a very uh, accomplished martial artist, uh, having been nationally ranked and champion and all these various things, as you pointed out. And uh, so we commend you and respect you big time for that. And I'm sure you could probably throw me across the room, but. Um, I, yeah, it's, <laughs> it, it was, you know, we all have something. Some people have gardening, some people have music or dance. Yeah. But in all of us is this core. I, I just call it the, the solar core, you know, of our knowingness, of our connection to something greater than who we think we are. Because if you look at it, infants, before they've been socialized and or traumatized, are so curious. They're not afraid to fall down. You know, when my daughter would fall and hit her head, she wouldn't cry because I didn't make a big deal about it. She'd jump out and go, mommy, you know? And so when (laughs) I look at the potential that we have when we're small as really little God beings still connected to whatever breathes us, and then we undergo this, this gradual socialization with well-meaning people. Oh, don't do that. You won't be okay. Oh, no, no. You can't go to college. Girls don't go to college. They yeah. get married. Mm-hmm. You know, and all that sort of socialization numbs us to who we are. Mm. And my sense is my journey through all the various traumas I've endured. It actually, when you think of diamonds being compressed, you know, some of them come out of volcanic tubes at 2,000 degrees temperature. And they're pretty dirty when they're popped out into the earth. All of us, in our own way, are diamonds. And I believe our job is to very lovingly clean each of the facets of who we are as human beings. And I think that's our task, to be who we are, to know the journey, to begin it, go through this hero's journey where we forget who we are, we wander, we're martyred, we're victims, we're victimizers. But ultimately, inside of all of us is this exquisite core of beauty. Yeah. And, and that's what yeah. I see now, Phil. I didn't always. Mm. That wow. 
you know, and that's something that so many easily forget, including me at times, and perhaps even you once in a while. But it's this this depth of what we are and our potential, and and tuning ourselves to that. And I love the word tuning just because you know I've talked about this in the podcast because I'm a musician, and you know we're kind of like instruments that get out of tune. But when we tune ourselves to to reality. Uh, then you can see that true perspective of what we are and what we're capable of. And, and whether we're fully sparkly diamonds, to use your analogy, at the moment or not, the fact that we have that power in us to be that, I think, speaks volumes to to our value. Because um, <laughs> I, you know, I could go real deep on all these topics. <clears throat> Excuse me, I heard somebody tell a story where they, they were actually in this really dark place and they were actually contemplating suicide. And she went outside at night and it was dark and in these moments is, you know, getting close to this, possibly carrying it out and uh, just look to the stars and look to the sky and the clouds and the, you know, the houses and the roads. And and there's this distinct impression, whatever you want to call it, some might call it the Holy Spirit or something from the universe spoke to her. And she said uh-huh. that the impression that she had told her, you are worth more than all that you see. Which to me, it just kind of stuck with me. And I tell that story sometimes now because, uh, you know, it's not my story, but <laughs> it's it's a powerful thing to contemplate if that's true. And it, there's people who there's certain religious connotations and stuff. But I personally believe this is why I do a podcast called Empower Humans. And I know you uh, you use those words a lot in a lot of things you do about empowering and empowering humans. Um, what we are and what we're capable of is worth more than all that we see. We're not worth more than each other, but all these this vast, massive universe and stars and galaxies galore. Um, if we start to see ourselves that way, I think there's there's deep power there. Um, and, and on that note, you talked about your daughter. You know, <laughs> I've got two boys myself. Someone told me long ago some of what you said, which is when they fall down or hit their head or whatever, they respond based on how we respond. So if, if we, oh, no, and then they start to go, you know, start crying and go crazy. How did, I don't mean to shift gears too much, but how did that relate for you as a kid and then how you shifted gears becoming an adult? Uh, did you experience some of that kind of on the more negative side in terms of uh, just? I, I, I did. Um, and ironically, my my family are, are all musicians. My dad was a founding member of ASCAP. My brother's a musician. Wow. My sister's a musician. I play the piano from the time I was five. Beautiful. And that tuning that you talked about, and the attunement, my life was very much out of resonance, out of harmony. Yes. It was disharmony. And it wasn't safe. It really wasn't safe. So I learned very early how to cover up my soft underbelly. Mm-hmm. I knew things. My mom was very, very intuitive. Matter of fact, she was so intuitive that when she would say she saw things, they they promptly funnel shocked her, um, hoping to do whatever they did. But it just didn't help much but that attunement and being out of residence and feeling like an imposter phil i spent most of my teens and 20s and probably my early 30s feeling like an imposter and if people found out who i was on the inside i would be rejected out of hand Mm -hmm. now that is a dysfunctional approach that my inner i call it the inner negativity that comes as a friend to help you get through you know, the hypervigilance, the people pleasing, the feeling like a victim. Those may have helped me then, but they didn't help me as I started to become curious about who I was really. And the the ability for us to overcome the unovercomable um, is made possible by that thing that breathes us. I don't care if you call it Holy Spirit, if you call it Allah, if you call it whatever. Yeah. In us, whatever breathes us lies the key to our freedom, and it's always at hand. And I used to walk down the street when I was trying to, you know, I I lived in the country for quite a few years in Pennsylvania. Actually, I ran a a retreat center. Mm -hmm. And I'd go out at night, and I'd I'd breathe, and I'd say, be still to myself. I'd hold my breath, and then I'd, I'd say silently, trust. And then I'd take my next step, and I'd say, I am. So I constantly said, be still, trust, I am, to Mm. begin to activate that part that had to go dormant. Mm. And like a pianist who's drawn to the piano, or I was drawn to song quite a bit, 
those things, like the woman with the night sky, would lift me to a place of not wishing I was dead. I spent most of my childhood wishing I was dead, which is very strange for a young child. Mm-hmm. And the depth of the trauma, I became a headbanger, you know, and, and nobody ever knew. But I was trying to stop the pain, which I had no ability to even comprehend what it was exactly. And so for me, you know, and for all of us, I truly believe there's a moment in our life that if we pay attention, we can literally step from one train track to another and shift our course. And empowering humans is about us being aware enough of the fact that we are aware beings. Most of us go through life, every time we get up on the right side of the bed, we turn off the alarm clock, we get up, we stagger into the bathroom, we make our cup of coffee, whatever that is, it becomes a rote hypnotic state. And I was that. I was the martial artist. I trained hard. As you mentioned, I was nationally ranked. I was state AAU champion, nationally ranked um, AAU. I won all sorts of tournaments. I did it because I wanted trophies in my karate school, frankly. Mm-hmm. And um, and from there, I was invited to be a guest of the government. So I was driven to be uber good yeah. so that I could be enough. Wow. And that's not healthy. You know, part for me of the turnaround was I left my, my first husband when he became violently bipolar and strangled me. And my daughter was watching. And I couldn't stay because I didn't want her to live with that. And that was the defining moment where I went in the bedroom and I kept journals for more than 40 years. I said, my marriage died today and he did it one more time. And then I left and that was the beginning of a wake up call because I had done the rote good wife thing, worked full time, was a full time wife, had a daughter, taught karate six days a week and worked for a petrochemical industry from nine to five. Mm -hmm. That was the part of me that was striving to find something, but it, I was disconnected or so it seemed. So the tragedy of the wake up of my husband doing that, I like to say, if you won't go, your angels will kick you in the butt. Cause it had been about five years that I'd been knowing something wasn't right as his, as his mental state went downhill. And when I left, you know, I remarried three years later to an amazing human being. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to marry him because I have like an awareness, a heightened awareness, which what people that live in trauma have. And I had this knowing that he was going to die. I didn't know how or why I knew. And I said, I don't want to get married to you, go silly lady. You already are, so just marry me. (laughs) And he died in a plane crash three years later. Wow. So knowing things when you're compressed and you're connected to the universe allows us to expand to the edge of our creation. And the example I use, Phil, is that of a spider, this intricate neb and web, and it spans like from one tree to another sometimes, or from a doorway to the other side of the doorway. And anytime anything lands in that web, there's a vibratory thing set off that the spider in the middle can tell where the prey has landed. And we're a lot like that. We're connected to everything to one another in ways that that quantum science predicts but most people aren't yet aware of becoming a self-aware human being and rising above our challenges puts us in that rarefied place where who we are makes a difference yeah and we don't have to do anything except show up as us and is life always easy no look at the snafus we had today (laughs) I wrote my goals, I checked my Udi, you know, I did all this stuff. And then in the end, it wouldn't work. And then we had to go from one thing to another. And life is like that. We have obstacles. We're here to overcome setbacks, to gain awareness, to do service. And then ultimately, ultimately to know that whatever is breathing us has got our back the whole time, no matter how horrific it might look. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Now, Talar de Sharan said that, was an incredible archaeologist, mm. and he was, he was basically excommunicated from the church for daring to say such a radical thing. 
but I'm sharing something that is so ordinary that people miss it. We get caught in the, the TV, we come home, we turn on the TV, some people have a wine, you know, they eat chocolate when they're upset, that would be me. Um, yeah. and, and on and on we go, and yet within us is this incredible, vast awareness that transcends anything we think we are, like that woman connecting with the night sky. We're that magnificent. This this is these are all very very powerful both points and stories and um, when you talk about this awareness there's actually like two or three key things I want to touch on if you don't mind but one of okay. which is how do we get in tune you know using this musical analogy how do we get in tune with this how do we define what this awareness is and uh, and we can talk more a little bit too down a little bit down the road here about uh, resiliency and stuff as well that you mentioned but. Let's talk about getting in tune. How do we wake up to this reality and, and how do we define this awareness? And, and by the way, as a little side note, as you talked about, you, you mentioned some affirmations and some power in that. Um, maybe that's part of waking up to this awareness. But do you want to define what this awareness is and how we get there? And maybe the affirmations sure. are part of that. Go ahead. It's a really powerful question, and I'll see if I can unpack it as, as um, succinctly as I can. Okay. My awareness and everybody is different, right? So my awareness came from lifetimes, a lifetime of stuffing my feelings, of early on saying, I will never show anybody that I hurt. So I I became immune to pain, which is not very healthy. Um, when I did my martial arts, I mean, I had my nose broke broken. A doctor said at ringside, I went on to compete. I just ignored that. Mm -hmm. um, I broke my, my arm once where somebody was didn't like women and he smacked me really hard. It just made me more angry. I was driven by a lot of anger and resentment and I channeled it into the martial arts. So I never hurt anybody except myself by training hard. So I was in what I would call a numb state. Now, when you don't have the tools to be self-aware, you're going to do what your body needs to do to survive. You're going to numb it down. You're going to forget things. I had like 17 years of missing memories when I ran away. When I left home, I shut the door on that until I was 34. And then, you know, the ghost came to haunt me and it showed up in my body. So when we're not self-aware, we tend to store things that we don't know how to handle. Wow. We push it down. And the journey to awareness for me came... I would say when I hit bottom, when my first husband grabbed my daughter out of my hands, when I didn't feel strong enough to really go after him, because I had this this constantly been told I wasn't enough, I wasn't enough, I wasn't enough, um, that I thought she might be better off with him. Um, that broke my heart. And of course, he totally, I didn't see her from the time she was ultimately 12 to 21. And I've only seen her seven times since. That pain mm. drove me to awakening because I couldn't stand it anymore. And I needed to look at what was my role. How was I creating and attracting a man that loved me for all those years and overnight flipped a switch when I got pregnant? And I started looking at the person in the mirror, which was me. So when I felt mad at somebody... I could no longer say that I'm mad because, because that's a lie. I can say I'm mad, and that's truth. But when I say I'm mad because, that's a delusion. We're putting meaning on something that's not really there. So I started getting curious about what made Lynn tick, and what, what, what did it mean to be self-aware. When I worked out and I was in the zone, I was completely open and expanded. I could tell when somebody was going to punch me before they punched me, which is why I was so good at what I did. Wow. And it came out of trauma as well. But I honed what I had. And then when my daughter left and I moved and started a spiritual retreat center, my my second husband died in a plane crash. Yeah. And so that put me into a profound state of grief, which began to unlock the missing memories, the, the downfall of a man with my bipolar ex-husband whom I adore to this day and yet I had to wake up or I would die it was that simple mm. and even though I wanted to die I kept on 
and then I kept honing my skills energetically to work with people. So I figured that if my pain and my suffering could redeem me somehow in a way that I could make others' suffering less, that was the beginning of my journey to self-awareness. So the peace, be still, I am, was a mantra I said. And I would walk for miles. I would walk in midnight with my dog. I lived in the country on a dirt road. You know, I wasn't afraid of the dark at that point. I mean, I could go in the woods and feel comfortable. Um, I was very much a loner. And I would have one person or two people in my life that I confided with. And in both cases, it, it was my it was my husband's. When David left, I was faced with um, not being able to work because I got really sick. They said it was Lyme disease or whatever the heck it was. But I, I recovered. I had friends friends that I didn't know I have reach out to me, old karate students, old Tai Chi students. Mm -hmm. And uh, at some point, I really, really hit a low. And at that point, this is where serendipity, if we can be open to serendipity, I call it my friend. And serendipity is when unrelated things come together to lift you and to help you. So out of the clear blue, I got a phone call from a woman that had heard me speak. And she says, do you teach healing? I said, not really. She goes, but you're a healer. I said, well, yeah, but I don't call myself that. God does the healing because I want to study with you. So she, she started studying with me. I became incredibly good friends with this woman and her family who then literally took me in. And I spent more nights there sleeping than I did at my own home. That was the beginning of me letting humanity touch me to know that I wouldn't be hurt. And it, it chokes me up to think I had to wait till I was, what, in my late 30s to have my ability to trust somebody other than myself. Yeah. yeah. And I could go on and on. My third husband died um, 14 years ago. Wow. And he's, he also was the love of my life. Each one in their own way was my teacher. And we should all be so lucky. Now, yes, I've had massive losses. Yeah. You know, my daughter, two husbands, my own health, that my business went south when I was really ill. And yet in all of that, I hit ground zero where I was willing to look at myself more fully than I ever had in my life. And I didn't like always what I saw, which is why most of us run. And yet with the spirit, with the, I'll call it the, the wisdom of my body and my spirit, and even to some extent my mind, certainly not my ego, but the things that were bigger than Lynn stepped in with the few kindnesses that people showed me. And I was off and running. And my martial arts were the foundation because I knew I could get up one more time than I fell down. And I have done that a lot. I also know that there is something that has my back. Whether I can touch it or taste it or describe it, it's palpable. Yeah. And that's what the willingness to take the journey to self-awareness will put you in touch with this masterful being called you. Hmm. And that's the last thing we think about ourselves. Wow. You, wow, these are, again, very deep, powerful things you're saying. And first of all, I'm sorry to hear about all these massive losses uh, on all fronts, really. And you talk about, uh, you know, being in a numb state and then the pain of that situation that you described uh, with your first husband sounds like. Uh, that that drove you to an awakening. It drove you to something powerful. When we talk about pain like this, is that the purpose of pain, do you think? Or is that one of the purposes that it drives us to an awakening or to at least more gradual of our gradual life awakening? What is the purpose of pain, if if we have any insight? Well, you know, it's a warning system. Um, if you're going to touch a hot stove and you don't know any better, mm -hmm. the pain will tell you not to go touching a hot stove again. Right. There's pain that I would call somewhat necessary. In birth, there's some pain. You can transcend it with your breathing. I've, I've transcended lots of pain. I've had um, the physical pain I can handle much, much more uh, quickly than the emotional pain. But we have something called the amygdala, in, in the fight, flight, or response system of our brain, 
And any pain that we have or any trauma we have is recorded in the eternal now. So as we go through life and we experience pain or distress or loss or loss of a job or a spouse or a child or or even just the loss of our youthful figure, the amygdala records all of that. And so many of us get stuck in a hamster wheel from early on. Now, is pain powerful? Yes. Pain, physical, emotional pain drove me. Um, I use physical pain to drown out the emotional pain. Pain also is unnecessary Mm -hmm. to the extent that when we become aware that largely it's a trick. Now, I'm talking about the pain we inflict on ourselves when we say, I'm no good. I'm just, I'm just a loser. Um, I should, I would be better dead. My parents would be better if I was dead. I would be better if my parents were dead. All these stories we make up, that's what I call unnecessary pain generated by, I would call it a negative operating system in our, in our beingness. We have a battery positive and negative pole. It's not bad. It's just negative. And then there's positive. And we, if we look at pain as something that can give us immediate feedback, like if I start to have a deep set of upset about something I'm going to do, I take a step back. I call that preemptive pain. And if I, and I, and I did a two year study because ultimately, you know, I started out pre med with an economic scholarship. Mm-hmm. And now I work in the field of energy and, and the ability to access people's field for lack of a, just to say their energy. But when I would start to test it, if I ignored my intuition, there would be a pain consequence. If I didn't ignore my intuition, and this is how I grew to trust myself, because I didn't trust myself at all, mm-hmm. and I kept an actual journal. So when I thought, oh, man, I'm not doing anything. I don't know what I'm supposed to do right now. That was my big negative power uh, trick. Well, I know I'm here to do something, but what am I supposed to do? Yeah. But but I know I have a mission, and you know that's that hamster wheel. Our mission is to breathe in and breathe out. Now, there are times when we will willingly take on pain, like when I trained to go to the nationals, when I trained to go to mainland China, where I was an invited guest when they first opened it in 84. I trained hard. Was I sore? Yes. Sometimes I overtrained, which inflicted unnecessary pain on me. So pain could be looked at not as something awful, but as an indicator that something might be amiss. Yeah. And when we put up with it and put up with it, that's when we get more and more numb because the body says, hey, Joe, she's not willing to handle this pain. Where are we going to put it? I stick it in her liver, which is where a lot of rage and resentment is stored in our body. Wow. Or if you're really pissed off, you'll find that there's a reason we say he's pissed off. That sort of energy gets stuck in the kidneys or the bladder. And so through the years in working with my own body, in accessing the boo-boos, you know, the stiff necks, the lower back pain. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a pain in, in kind of my mid-back. It's pretty much gone now. But when my husband slammed me over the back of a hard, hard, a hard-backed couch, mm. thank God I was really in excellent shape. It didn't break my back. Jeez. But it did give me, a, you know, a really bad spot in my back that later physical therapist said, did you have a trauma to your back? I said, no. And I said, oh, well, my husband got violent with me once, you know. And then I had another thing where he punched me out and knocked me out. So I had a jaw problem. But all that stuff is gone now as I got curious and fascinated. Wow, what if my body actually stores all of my memories, the good, the bad, and the ugly? So as I went through and I looked at what I termed pain, I would get curious about my pain, even to the point of going into my back and imagining I was blowing it up and seeing where the pain was and telling it I loved it and it didn't need to stay. And this was a process of discovery and more discovery and more discovery simply by curiosity. Pain is here to tell us to get fascinated because we may be about to avoid something or step into something. And every human being has sensors we're built with sensors, you know, to know things. We get goosebumps. I call them truth bumps. We get bumps when something bad's about to happen, you know, and we are our own best map. We're the map. We're the, the, the hiker on the map. We get to change the map of our consciousness and existence 
one little step at, at a time with curiosity. Wow, am I hiding something from myself? My shoulder's always sore. Well, why is it that I sprain my ankle over and over and have that pain? Get curious, talk to your ankle. You'd be amazed what can happen. So what, yes, great, great stuff. Again, what do we do then with the pain? And pain being a broad term, you know, I'd like to be specific, you know, whether it's the aftermath of trauma, uh, anger you talked about that we store in our body. I think you mentioned the kidneys a lot of times. Um, what do we do? What do you suggest if someone's coming to Dr. Lynn and says, hey, I'm dealing with all this and this is why, whatever it is, maybe they went through what you've gone through so you can relate. But whatever it is, that's one general common thread, I think, through all of humanity. We go through pain mm-hmm. uh, of all sorts. I think it is. What, what do we do it, it with that pain in a healthy way so that it doesn't become a cancer of sorts to, to right. continue to afflict us in other ways? Go ahead, sorry. And and unacknowledged, frequently traumas become cancers. There's something called the adverse childhood effect study, which is ongoing, that victims of trauma are likely to die 10 years before their counterparts without trauma. The more trauma you have, the more your likelihood of alcohol and drugs and et cetera, which is an escape from the pain. Mm -hmm. Given what they had at the time of the pain, it's the most easy ways to kill the pain which only ends up hurting us. When people come to me, and I just worked with somebody last week who survived incredible atrocities, the body, mind, and spirit. She's been working on it for 50 years, for crying out loud. And she said, I heard you speak on this trauma thing, and I was moved to call you. And so the first thing I do, and the first thing anybody has to do in my awareness, is to make it safe for yourself. You know, when you have suffered massive trauma, you're going to be numb. You're going to be in shock. You're not going to think straight. There's certain progressions. When when police officers shoot somebody, they're given 48 hours before they're questioned, generally speaking, so that their brain can begin to settle down. Mm. Now, in in the studies that I've done with with rape victims, when when uh, a an incredible researcher studied this topic and she came and uncovered that most rape kits are never used in, in precincts that they never test the women. And the general reason is that police officer not understanding trauma will say, did you fight the guy? Did you try to fight the guy off? And the woman will go, I couldn't move. I was paralyzed. And then their immediate thinking based on cultural preconceptions is she must've wanted it. Now, the truth is, for Mm. any victim of trauma, whether it's a loss of a spouse or an F at school, Mm -hmm. it's going to have a different vibration and feel given on what you're here to work on in your own life. But when, when you give somebody who's a victim of trauma time, just time to sit with someone, someone who's not trying to do anything with them, not trying to fix them, just sitting with them. So when people call me, I'll say, hey, it's so nice to meet you, you know, and I'll share a little bit about myself. And I say, well, was it the bright? I'm 100% word of mouth. I have been since 1984. I'll say, who sent you? Well, you know, da, 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 da. Well, can I share a little bit today? I really want to work with you today. I said, well, that's really a noble thing. But let's take a look and see if you're really ready to deal with this today. And sometimes they're not. In which case, we begin to build a container of safety for them. Yeah, It's called trauma-informed care. They're in charge of how far they go. They're in charge of saying, no, I don't want to do any more today. They're in charge of what they tell me or don't tell me. Mm-hmm. The beauty is when I have permission to read them, like PC Anywhere, I can just sit with them and feel the level of their trauma. And, and then because I say I don't know, because I don't know anything. I just know that I don't know, but whatever breathes me and whatever has kept me alive through trauma after trauma after trauma, I know that that thing has me and has every other person. It's kind of a roundabout way to answer you, but creating a container of safety where there's no shame, there's no second guessing, and allowing people to cry or experience what's present is so powerful. Yes. I had people shush me up when I was with therapists and I started to share what happened to me, they had to go get therapy 
So I shut up really fast. And it wasn't until I began what I call God therapy or soul therapy or curiosity therapy. Mm -hmm. What makes me tick? Why this pain? And I began to peel back the layers of the onion, not the whole onion at once, because that's pretty stinky. But the outer peel, just by getting a little bit curious, why is it when I'm ever in the presence of blue cheese, I want to throw up? Interesting question, isn't it? And then if the person allows himself to just be with it, then things start to happen. Now, there's something I can share with your listeners which is very, very helpful, and it can help with the amygdala. It can help with the trauma, and it allows you to go into your unconscious where a lot of this stuff is promptly pushed down, and that's to keep you alive. I mean, that's that truly kept me from going insane, stuffing all the stuff. So it's called free-form writing, and I'm giving all your listeners that want it a free course. It's 10 minutes a day, roughly 10 times. Do it at your leisure. But there's a tool in there called free form writing where you write what you think. Mm -hmm. it, there's no punctuation, no spelling. If you're pre-verbal or pre-writing, you may find yourself scribbling on the paper. You light a candle. You don't, you set, you set your timer for 20 minutes and you sit down and at the top you write for the highest good of all concerned, which is like a Google search. You're not going to go dig stuff up you don't need. And then you write. So I did mine. I, I did it as recently as yesterday, actually, mm -hmm. where I was having some traumas come up. And um, I sat down for this at this point in my life for 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. And when I was done, I was back. I was calm. I was cool. And that issue was no longer even present in my consciousness as a trauma. Mm. And that's freeform writing. Imagine drilling a little hole into your unconscious, like drilling for oil. In this case, you're you're drilling to release things that are ready to come up. That's why you say for the highest good. And it's like putting a little pinhole in your unconscious, and this stuff begins to bubble up when you're writing. And you could be writing, I don't know what I'm writing about today. This is the most stupid thing I've ever done. And why am I doing this? And whatever you're thinking, you just say it. Oh, crud, I forgot to pay my my da 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 And I, oh, did I leave the, 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 the kettle on? You just write it. And at the end of 20 minutes, you get up, if you can, you go over your kitchen sink and burn it. I take one piece of paper, top to bottom, turn it upside down, top to bottom. Never, ever reread it because you are taking up things that have made you sick and traumatized and stubborn and hypervigilant or hyperrational or, or perfectionist. All those things were coping mechanisms. Going to your unconscious in an itty bit of little, itty bit of little friend lets it come up in a timely manner that won't hurt anybody. Mm -hmm. If my mother had had that, she probably wouldn't have been committed. Mm -hmm. So I've been using this for roughly 25, 27 years. And it's still my go-to tool when I have something coming present where I'm not clear, I'm uncertain, I'm angry. I, I want to go and, and just hurt myself. I just want to eat myself into oblivion. Freeform writing. When you're done, wash your hands, you know, have a glass of water, forget what you did. And if you did that three times a week, you know, for 20 minutes, but you have to do what you say you're going to do. That's the caveat. If you don't take action, you're unconscious, the part of you, and also this part I call the basic self that runs your body systems, gets all excited in the beginning. Oh, boy, we're going to do free-form writing. Nothing happened. Oh, boy, we're going to go on a diet. Hey, they ate a cookie after three hours. Then that part of us ignores us. When you say you're going to write for 20 minutes, you set your timer, you write for 20 minutes. Even if you say, God, it's not 20 minutes, it's not 20 minutes, it's not 20 minutes. Sometimes nothing happens. Sometimes in the 19th minute, you'll have like this brief thunder shower, this cry, and then you're done. Mm. And it's a safe way to do divine, divine, uh, I can't really use the word spiritual therapy, but divine therapy on the parts of you that hurt. Yeah, And it, it doesn't hurt anybody. And there's a lot more of those things in that little 10 minute a day or 10 minute, 10 minutes a week, it doesn't matter, that are for self-awareness and overcoming trauma. And it's simple. And I learned it from someone who taught it to me, who kept me from going crazy. Mm -hmm. And then there's whole variations on that. But that's in that, that class, Phil. And I would say for people that are suffering pain, another incredible tool that I used I spent 19 years working with domestic violence, and 10 of that was as a board chair. We use art as a healing tool 
So when you have so much pain, you can't even cry it out. If you got yourself a piece of paper or a pad and you scribbled and you drew and you painted and you put your pain on the paper. And then when you're done, you write what your pain told you. And I know we're, 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 we're coming up on time, but what I wanted to share is the story of an eight-year-old boy who came to a halfway house shelter for, for battered women and children mm-hmm. and was so violent that they didn't know what to do with this kid. And once a week they had something called, you know, art in the afternoon or whatever it was called. And they would do two hours of art for the women in one part and the kids in the other and sometimes together. This little boy, you don't have to do anything. You can curl up, you can sleep, you can sit in the corner, you can pick your nose. But after a while he got curious and he did an art thing. And it was a triangle with two eyes, a nose and a mouth and a little squiggle of hair. Mm-hmm. And the shelter leader said, what, what did your, what, and it was called the monster in me exercise. What did your monster tell you? And the little boy looks up at her with these big eyes and he goes, I learned that my monster has no ears and he can't hear just how mad and angry he is. Mm. And that was the turnaround for that little boy. Mm. So that's the power of arts. I, we use it with veterans. I use it with people with PTSD. There's so much you can do. And there's no such thing as not being an artist. We're all creative. Putting the pen and scratching, um, just scribbling is art because it's your unconscious talking to you. And that's the key to freedom. Getting curious. What is this pain? Is it even my pain? Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, if we're empaths, we carry people's pain. Why do I have a backache? I didn't hurt my back. Well, you're carrying your mother-in-law's backache. And if you just ask a question, is it my pain? Yes or no. If it's no, anything from or through, who is it? If you don't know anything from or through X that's giving me pain, I'm going to give that back. And I'll give it to God or I'll give it to love, but I'm not going to carry it. And then other times it is your pain. And then you have two tools. You can go, you know, you can do the free form writing. You can cry, but you don't want to over cry because that'll exhaust you. You can do that the, the, any kind of art drawing, scribbling, it is so cathartic. My dissertation has a lot of that stuff in it because I did it all on myself. And so those are some things I would leave. And then, um, and then another thing that I would leave with your listeners, if they're interested, is that I did write a book called Beyond Lovelyville. Yeah. It's actually autobiographical through the eyes of mice and frogs and little creatures that live on a pond. But just about everything that happens in there in some way, shape, or form is part of my actual life. And it contains the tools in in a very gentle way to read the book and see what sinks in. I've had people with brain injuries read it five times, and each time they said, oh, I got something different each time. So those are some things that I would say to support your listeners and to their loved ones, because it works if you work it. And the biggest thing is to be curious rather than to shovel it down underneath because it will come back to hurt you physically, emotionally, mentally, or your loved ones. What we don't heal is passed to our children. Yeah. And yeah. That's, that's done through the RNA. And Vetner's genomic experts uncovered that. And um, my family is the fourth generation of female child to be taken from a mother at an early age. That's how the history repeats itself. When they say the sins of the fathers are visited upon their children, scientifically, that is very accurate. So what we don't heal, we pass on. And that's another reason to empower ourselves, to help empower others, especially our children and our loved ones. Yeah, that's uh, really deep. Thank you for sharing all of that. That's, uh, and I didn't want to interrupt because you have so many great things to add. I, one thing I would second, especially that, and a counselor taught me this, and it's in completely in tune with everything you're saying, is that uh, sometimes we talk about, and I know you talk about love and gratitude, and so I want to differentiate something that I thought and the people kind of instilled in me somewhat incorrectly over time is that when you're going through something that, okay, well, let's turn to love and gratitude and then kind of mask whatever pain, trauma, difficulty life is dishing out in whatever degree. Uh, But 
this counselor taught me kind of exactly what you're saying, that we don't shelter ourselves from our pain. We have to experience the tears. We have to experience the uh, release of all that inner tension. If there's anything right. humanity has taught us, it's this constant process of tension and release. And we've got to release especially other people's pain that some of us carry as empathic people and various things like that. Uh, and so it's when you talk about awareness, being aware that I'm carrying pain uh, uh, some sort, trauma or otherwise, and let that be released. And then what role does gratitude and love play in that process? This is as we get ready to wrap up here, one of maybe two or oh, so yeah. last questions. But what does what role does love and gratitude play? And um, obviously, we need to still release whatever effects of that pain uh, residually exist through tears or whatever right. needs to happen. Talk to I'll me about that. I'll be really quick on that one for you. Basically what happens is the, the pain and gratitude that we put on is sometimes spiritual bypass. When you face your pain, you honor your pain and you don't let it take over your life, then you're more in charge. The, the uh, habit of looking at your life with a, an equanimity or a neutrality is absolutely the impeccable and most important thing you can do. Okay. Forgiveness and, and, and gratitude and loving when you're in that place that you don't feel any and you bypass it, you use that as your protection. That's a spiritual bypass. When you allow yourself to feel what's present and then you get curious about it and it's not right away. There's shock, there's trauma, there's numbness. But when you allow yourself the grace of your healing process with the idea that you're going to use everything for you, then nothing comes that we can't handle. It may be 99.999%, but again, we're spiritual beings having a human experience. And love is not a physical love. It's a love of a flower, a sunrise, a sunset. Even in our sorrow, we can find humor. They call it gallows humor. So these are ways that people can also begin to become resilient. Practice the act of, wow, I'm upset. Not I'm upset because of what she said, but I'm upset. I'm sad. What is sadness trying to tell you? And on and on it goes. So I want to be mindful of of your time. Yeah. And is there any other question you have? Yeah. Well, we had a little where we cut out there for a second, um, but... Yes, and thank you for sharing all that. It's just becoming inquisitive to our pain and not bottling things up. I mean, that's a very unhealthy thing. The last question I had for you as as we get ready to close, and I like to ask our guests this kind of in closing lately, do you have any heroes, and if so, why? I look up to certain people, guys like Zig Ziglar and Tony Robbins and, you know, others in and out of that realm. Living or dead? (laughs) You tell me, either one. It's it's an open-ended question. Well, I would have to say, for me, it's the Christ, because that's who held me when I had my near life. So I I had that experience very young on. I would have to say, who do I admire the most? Hmm, There's so many people that I admire. (laughs) I admire admire Dr. Dr. Barry Morgulin, because he went on a healing journey to discover how to heal people. I would say that... Anybody that has been a a leader in your life or a teacher, you know, my husband's taught me how to love, especially James and, and David and my current husband, Paul. Peter taught me how to survive and how to shut down, and I'm grateful for that because he made me strong. But I would have to say right now, Paul is my hero because he spent 40 years working with people to help them heal. He's a doctor and an incredible healer himself. So okay. I, I think I would admire myself because I've overcome incredible odds. I love it. So there you have it. Yeah, that's beautiful. You've shared so much and been so vulnerable, and I honor you for that, and I appreciate all the wonderful insights. And I think someone could go back and listen to this five or ten times. I don't know that anyone will. I hope you do. <laughs> but, <laughs> if they get one tidbit, I put a lot of energy in this call so that whether people ever listen or not, if they listen to it once, They'll find something in their life that shifts. It's yeah. been my experience, and I do lots of podcasts. And uh, you know, today was an interesting one with all of our technical difficulties. Yeah. And I and even even losing you 
you know, for a couple minutes there. <laughs> so um, it's all part of the divine plan, and we're all messy, and life is messy, and we're here to make mistakes. Yeah. You know, take two, take 22, take 2022. <laughs> anyway, I need to jump because I'm going to go do a documentary series now. Yes. So just in closing, I'll just say again, your book is Beyond Lovelyville, A Parable of Self-Awareness and Rising Above Trauma. And of course, this course, Are You Living Your Best Life 10 Minutes a Day? There'll be a link to that in the show notes. So Dr. Limerell, thank you. Thank you so much. And to our audience, of course, thank you. We're flattered you spend time with us. And uh, until next time, empower yourself, empower the world around you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Empower Humans. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review this podcast. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit EmpowerHumans.com. We'll catch you next time.